This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Good day, I should have said, because we're all Australian now. Uh, well, the weather's very hot, and uh, politics in Britain has all gone a bit like it has down under. Elections all the time, more and more fast-paced, regicide, leaders coming and going. So how do we cope if our politics is more Australian? Well, who better to ask than former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull? Really interesting conversation coming up with him uh, on the podcast, uh, casting an eye over the state of politics, uh, the prospect of, Amer- of Australia becoming a republic, and his memories of Olivia Newton-John. Uh, so that's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel. It is Tuesday, but there's no Finkelvich because Daniel Finkelstein is off, I don't know, cleaning football boots or something. So instead, we've got Oliver Camp and David Aronovich. How are we coping without a government? I remember there was that time when, um, was it Belgium went for months without a government and everyone said it functioned quite well. Should we worry about not having a government, Oliver? Yes, we should, because in this case, um, the Westminster model of government depends on a strong executive. We have a prime minister who is famously not, um, not even his closest friends would say that uh, a command of technical detail is his most salient characteristic. He is evidently not interested in the business of government. He is well known for his um, cupidity, his uh, desire for material things. And at a time when real poverty is emerging in Britain because of the depredations of um, uh, of, of cost push inflation. Um, this is an irresponsible way to behave and the notion that fiscal decisions are for his successor and he can enjoy his honeymoon and his holiday, that's just irresponsible. I'm all in favour of politicians taking holidays, but they should be engaged in policy matters that affect people's standard of living at a particularly crucial juncture. Uh, what do you think, though? Because it isn't, isn't the point, actually, that uh, Rishi Sunak announced a lot of help a few months ago, billions of pounds of help a few months ago, uh, to uh, help offset the impact of the uh, coming uh, um, uh, energy bill rises. And then it'll be for the new government to announce. We'll find out what the energy cap is going to be at the end of at the end of August. They could announce some stuff beginning of September. That'll all come in then, hopefully, before, before the bills actually go up. Um, so, essentially, your sentence goes on. So, 
couldn't some people say that it's all right that we don't have anybody doing anything yeah, at the time? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, for the sense, uh, for the uh, sense uh, of the next uh, three or four uh, weeks, there's a, there's a lag to all of this. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, it is. It is kind of absurd. I mean, the, the first thing to understand is, of course, that most of the halfway competent ministers under Boris Johnson resigned from the government, um, <laughs> and a lot of the people who replaced them are pro tem replacements, who I imagine the civil service people aren't able to take seriously because they're not going to do anything and won't be doing anything. Now, what could have happened was that Johnson could have gone immediately. A caretaker prime minister could have uh, taken over and said, in this period, I have a mandate with the agreement of the candidates, etc., to push ahead with things that need to be done. Um, CBI have said so. Gordon Brown has reminded us of what grown-up politics uh, can actually look like uh, uh, this week. Um, uh, so although it's not... <laughs> So although you're right that some of the things would have had two parts, i.e. a part that you would do during this period of interregnum and a part you would have done later when you got the full figures about the, the uh, energy price cap and so on, we do know quite a lot that's happening and we have effectively not got a government at a period when we should have a government. Um, and that's pretty serious. And, and if it's not serious, then let's not bother with governments. Let's just kind of, you know, just do away with the whole damn thing. <laughs> Is there a point, though, Oliver, do you think that because politics has changed so much, but the pandemic changed politics so much that there is now a direct expectation that if if my energy bill goes up, well, the government is going to do something about that. And so because because of what Rishi Sunak did during the pandemic, spent such huge amounts of money supporting businesses, furlough, uh, loans here, spending there. Do, there isn't really anyone making an argument that just says, well, this is just tough. You know, that the life is tough. Sometimes bills go up, sometimes bills go down. The expectation that anything bad happens and therefore the government must step in and do something. That's, a, that's quite a big shift, isn't it? I, I think you're reading too much into the experience of the pandemic, which was a case apart, an external shock to the economy and to living standards that was a case apart. I don't detect um, in voter sentiment the idea that, um, that government or rather the Bank of England can do much about inflation when it's being driven by external factors energy prices consequent upon Putin's aggression in Ukraine. But I do detect a widespread feeling that the government ought to be thinking seriously about how the edge could be taken off these pressures on living standards and the ideas being put about, particularly by Liz Truss, I'm afraid, on the issue of tax cuts in the Conservative leadership election, not only will not help but will exacerbate the problem. And at a time when policy debate is not being particularly serious, and I'd include the Labour Party in this, it's, it's um, recommendation for um, removing VAT on fuel bills will make a marginal difference in the circumstances. Um, in these circumstances, then government ought to be more serious than it is. And nobody expects Boris Johnson to come up with sensible ideas about how to ease pressure on living standards, which Gordon Brown is doing. And that's the problem. But what is what 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 should it what should it be? Because, I mean, the point you make about tax Liz, Liz just says she wants to cut income tax. So I was looking at almost half of people don't pay income tax either because they're pensioners exactly. or because they're uh, they're already, you know, because the threshold has been lifted so much. Um, uh, if VAT, taking VAT off only helps marginally, are we just in the situation where uh, the cost of living goes up and so the government just sends cheques to people? Is that the solution? Uh, to I mean, lo I mean, Sorry, David, please go on. 
well, let's well, let, well, well, let's define where the real problem lies. The real problem lies in uh, with poorer households uh, who typically either don't pay tax or don't pay much tax, whose bills are going up substantially, not just because of the price cap, but because of inflation generally. Uh, and what we are going, uh, what we are already seeing is uh, is a um, uh, a falling into poverty of a fairly significant section of the British population. Now, I would have said it was a priority of government to help those people. I will also suffer um, from uh, uh, inflation and suffer for uh, 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 and the, and price increases, but I don't need the help. Um, and a most, I, and I, I would suggest a large proportion of taxpayers don't actually need a tax cut. She would probably argue that actually it's to stimulate the economy, which at a time of relatively high inflation is a peculiar notion uh, in any case, uh, and so on. But she will do so by helping people who are better off like me, and not helping people who are much worse off. And what we're creating is a, a is a or exacerbates a huge social problem. And the other thing is, I think most British people actually do want to see those people help. They would like to see a significant package of, of assistance. Now, one of the things that hasn't happened in this debate is that Liz Trust has not quite spelled out what it is that the, that the proto-Thatcherite objection is to handouts. And so let's remind ourselves, it is moral hazard. Uh, and you hinted at it very obliquely, but uh, it used to be made absolutely much more uh, overtly, which is if you give money directly to people, then they won't work and there won't be an incentive to work and they will become a charge on the state and hardworking people will have to support them. And the reason why this is not spelled out is because I don't think people believe that anymore. Mm. I don't think they believe that about people who are in this kind of in this kind of situation. And therefore, it wouldn't be a popular thing to say. And yet, nevertheless, that psychology is lying at the back of her approach. And in fact, if you look at when I've looked at uh, polling on this, the, there has actually been quite a shift in in public attitudes. You know, there was a time when I mean, George Osborne was always said to have claimed basically you couldn't cut benefits enough. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, is now more, far more people, 34 percent of people think uh, think benefits are too low. Only uh, uh, what's that? 18 percent of people think benefits are too high. And so there has been that shift, you know, in the early days of the coalition, basically, if they needed to find money, he reached into the Department for Work and Pensions. And actually, the pub public mood does seem to have moved on that. Yes, I very much agree, Matt, and I agree with, with David's um, assessment of the issue. The freeze on in-work benefits had um, very damaging consequences for living standards. Um, we could say that it's a, um, uh, it's a success of um, government since the financial crash that the labour market was so strong, that unemployment was so low. But this didn't feed through into incomes for mm. lower-income households in work. And the right thing to do in these circumstances, the, the argument that Liz Truss makes is that a tax cut will not be inflationary because it will stimulate the supply side of the economy. This is very unlikely to be true when there, is when, when there isn't spare capacity in the economy. And the right thing to do is to concentrate on lower-income households by boosting universal credit yeah. and by boosting in-work benefits and um, that's the way to ease living standards in a way that doesn't benefit people like David and me who don't need the money. Well I'd include myself in that you know rather than the government sending me 200 pounds you know that would make a huge difference to, to, to other people. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, house has been raided by the FBI. Uh, Nigel Farage says it's the deep state at work I mean <laughs> as opposed to just the state 
uh, Oliver. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a, a ludicrous comment, a predictably ludicrous comment. There have been presidents in history who've had uh, sexual scandals like JFK, though that was hushed up, and Bill Clinton. There have been corrupt presidents like Warren Harding. There has not been a president before who sought to overthrow the system of government, of constitutional government in the United States, and who predictably has made off with evidence. It is a great tribute to American democracy that the rule of law applies to him as it does to everyone else. I'm delighted by this news, and I would be highly uh, uh, optimistic that this will do him immense damage. Um, uh, David, I don't know if you saw this yesterday. There was a, a story that came out from Axios. So it says uh, Maggie Haberman, who's uh, a reporter at the New York Times, has got a book coming out about Donald Trump, uh, where she's not only reporting that White House staff periodically found wads of paper clogging up a toilet, uh, with uh, Donald Trump is suspected of being trying to throw, destroy documents by flushing them away. She's actually got pictures She's got pictures of bits of paper that down the toilet. <laughs> There's the deep state for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They even reach up through your toilet. It's um, pretty deep for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, 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 it is pretty. Deep. I love the idea of the FBI raiding people as the deep state. I imagine that when Nigel Farage gets a, a parking ticket, that's the deep state as well. Um, you know, kind of uniform busybodies, kind of <laughs> doing something about his kind of private property uh, and so on. Um, uh, I think most people's reaction is going to be, "What took them so long?" Um, you know, think about all those days and months he's had to kind of fiddle around with evidence, etc. Um, I mean, it, w- it would be quite weird if they got into his place in Mar-a-Lago now and he's, he's still got a file marked how I tried to overturn <laughs> democracy. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a funny thing. There are two kinds of people essentially in, the, in this world. Trump supporters and uh, people who know he's a crook. Yeah. There are, you know, there's not uh, much overlap. And everybody, everybody who's not a Trump supporter knows that he's a crook and knows that he should, you know, the FBI. The, in fact, the FBI should have dealt with him before he ever stood for president, if you ask me. I mean, that would have been evidence of a, of a properly functioning deep state. My problem with the deep state in America is it doesn't seem to have been working very efficiently. <laughs> Yeah, if you had a deep state, you'd think it might be slightly better. Um, let's move on, because I want to talk about... Uh, I think, uh, Oliver, you wanted to talk about Amnesty International, which got into uh, trouble at the weekend. It said, well, it, it ended up saying it deeply regretted dis- the distress and anger caused after it put out a report that, that basically suggested Ukrainian for- forces were flouting international law by exposing civilians to Russian fire. Uh, they then basically said they, they fully stood by their findings, but stressed that nothing we documented... Uh, uh, Ukrainian forces doing in any way justifies Russians' violations. And you wanted to look at the basically what's happening, what's going on in Amnesty International. Amnesty is a venerable human rights organisation. It's been going since 1961. In the 60s and 70s, it did immensely good work in publicising the cases of prisoners of conscience worldwide, <coughs> gaining the reputation of being a, an impartial defender of basic human rights. It has lost its way in recent years in a number of respects, in my view. But this report, and I, I, I find it um, uh, um, a term that is um, uh, too dignified for the output uh, that they produced, 
last week suggesting that Ukrainian forces were flouting um, uh, the rules of international law, uh, the rules of war, international um, legally stand, international legal standards, um, by endangering civilians, was um, uh, an outrageous thing to say. It was outrageous not just because um, uh, Ukraine's armed forces are defending their country's very existence, uh, a sovereign member state of the UN, against um, aggression and annexation. Um, but because Ukraine's armed forces are defending their civilians and the consequence of this thoroughly irresponsible and egregious uh, document by Amnesty International is that Russia, uh, whose armed forces do attack civilian targets, they've done it in Chechnya, in Syria and now in Ukraine, quite deliberately attacking schools and hospitals, will continue to do so. And when it's exposed by international reporting, brave journalists on the ground, they will claim that the, 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 the fault lies with Ukraine and they have the imprimatur of Amnesty International um, to justify yeah, it. Exactly. It's an outrageous, it's a, it's outrageous a way to behave. David, it's a sort of propaganda coup for, for, for Vladimir Putin, isn't it? Well, certainly Russia's used it like that. I mean, I, I should preface it by saying I haven't read the report, so I absolutely can't say whether or not it's a flimsy report uh, uh, and so on. Uh, I should have read the report, but I just haven't the chance. But I'm quite happy to take Oliver's judgment uh, about it uh, on trust. And I will say, as a kind of background to this, that, of course, there is a problem for amnesty, which is at the moment when it might seem to criticise those causes that, by and large, we regard as being more virtuous. So there is a difficulty there, but I don't know whether that applies to this report uh, and whether or not this report has got has done it properly. I can also see a separate and opposite and rather perverse inclination that some organisations might have, which is to say the whole of the West is supporting Ukraine, etc., so maybe we'd better kind of do the other thing a little bit. Um, but again, I haven't read it, so I don't know yeah, if that's okay. true. Well, let's let's, uh, let's round off by talking about wine. That's a much easier thing. I mean, it's, never mind the energy bills. The cost of wine is going up, apparently. Uh, investors looking to hedge against inflation are buying up rare wines and whiskies as investments. Apparently, in the first six months this year, fine wine market prices up 10%, driven by a super rare blue chip burgundy, which when you... Doesn't sound very nice when you talk about that. That's up twenty six percent. Some wines are up fifty percent. Are you a big wine wine drinker, Oliver? I'm not a big wine drinker. <laughs> I, I enjoy wine, um, but from the standpoint of investment, you can see the argument. Financial assets at a time of high inflation do badly. Bonds, in particular, because the fixed stream of income they generate, um, the, the real value of it deteriorates rapidly. Um, equities do a little bit better because they are a claim on real assets, the plant and machinery that the companies own. And you could extend that by saying um, uh, wine and whiskey, uh, rare wine and rare whiskey and, and perhaps works of art too, um, they are real things and the price of them should go up along with the price of, um, of, of consumer items. It's not a very good argument, I think, from, from an investment standpoint. I've been looking at investment all my professional life. I think the only things you should invest in are those that generate cash, those that generate money, bonds, stocks, um, property, which can generate a rent, uh, notional rental income. And um, if you're interested in wine, and I like wine, buy it to drink, buy yeah, it to yeah, consume. Yeah, 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 don't, yeah, yeah. don't buy it thinking you can sell it for a higher price. The idea, the idea of buying wine and then just putting it to one side, what's the point of that? 
David Wadovich and Oliver Cam. Then, of course, you can read them both in the Times of your week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesfedbox. Up next is my chat with Malcolm Turnbull. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, the weather is mad and boiling over here, and so is the politics. No wonder we don't need neighbours anymore. Uh, With elections coming around more and more often, British politics is becoming more fast-paced, more regicidal, more, you could say, Australian. Well, what can we learn from political uh, developments down under? Well, one man who can help us is Malcolm Turnbull. He became leader of Australia's centre-right Liberal Party when they were in opposition in 2008. But then he was challenged two years later and ousted by Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott went on to win the 2013 election. But then two years later, Malcolm Turnbull quit the cabinet, challenged Tony Abbott and reclaimed the leadership and became Prime Minister himself. Then in 2018, Malcolm Turnbull was challenged for the leadership. He stood aside, quitting politics and triggering a by-election, which the Liberal Party lost plenty of uh, similarities to what's going on in British politics uh, right now. Malcolm Turnbull was replaced as leader by Scott Morrison, who managed less than three years in office before he lost the election in May this year. So now let's speak to the former Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. Good morning. Good evening to you. Thank you very much. Great to great to be with you, Matt. Uh, it was good to have you with us. Uh, before we talk politics, I suppose I should say welcome home because you were a journalist for the Sunday Times before you got embroiled in all that political nonsense. Yeah, that's that's right. That's exactly right. I remember uh, that great editor of the Sunday Times in those days, uh, Harry Evans, said to me that uh, uh, you know I, I I told him that I thought I would go on and study law, and he said, uh, "Oh, Malcolm," he said, "Don't do, don't study law. You know what? If you do that, uh, you know you'll become a lawyer, or worse, <laughs> you could become a judge." Or even worse than that, his voice sank and he said, you could become a politician. Uh, So he was trying to persuade me to stay in journalism. But I didn't listen to him and uh, there you go. So I've done quite a few jobs, including journalism and politics and a few other things. Uh, But let's talk talk politics then. This this idea that that maybe there is 
the British politics will go in the way of Australia. I mean, Britain's about we're, about, we're about to get our fourth prime minister since 2010. Australia's on its eighth. What is it about British, uh, Australian politics that means you get through uh, prime ministers at such a rate? Well, look, we have periods where we have a lot of prime ministers, a lot of bit of a revolving door, and then we have periods uh, where we don't. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, John Howard was prime minister for a long time. Bob Hawke was prime minister for a long time. Malcolm Fraser was prime minister for a long time. And uh, then really beginning with Rudd, it became, you know, the revolving door accelerated. <laughs> Look, uh it's just the nature of nature of democracy, you know. But the 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 ship of state sails on. Uh, it's one of the geniuses of parliamentary democracy that, when leaders, uh, for whatever reason, are not satisfying their constituency, they can be turfed out. Um, you know, one of the things that you have in the UK, which we do not have, uh, is the involvement of the party members directly in choosing leaders. That's to say, in the Liberal Party, the Labor Party does. I might say the uh, our Labor Party does. Uh, I don't think it's a great idea myself, but uh, that obviously makes the contest a very prolonged one. And you've now got the spectacle of two of your leading figures in the Tory Party, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Uh, you know, not so affably tearing shreds off each other in their efforts to win the support of the party members. Yeah, so let's explain the system in in Australia. You have spills. You sort of all just get together in a room and just thrash it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, basically, look, the parties all have slightly different rules, but essentially, in the Liberal Party, uh, you know, it's a majority of members can call for a spill. A spill of the majority of the parliamentary members can call for a spill of the position of leader or deputy leader or both of them. Uh, the leader can always spill the position. I mean, I did that in. 2018 to uh, head off a, an attempted coup by Peter Dutton. And um, anyway, that led to a whole series of events which resulted in Scott Morrison becoming prime minister. But there is, uh, yeah, you can you can do that. I, I, I think we have been too quick to change leaders in Australia, to be quite honest. Uh, I think it, and I think it's done a lot of damage to our political culture. Um, and yeah, I, I I don't think it's I I I think the if uh, British politics starts to emulate that, I don't think I think they'll live to regret it. Um, there's always been this view in British politics. I think actually put put about by Michael Heseltine after he, he failed to replace Margaret Thatcher that he who wears the knife never wears the crown. He who you know launches a challenge or or mm. or quits mm. to to try and oust a leader never ends up that that ends up counting against him. But you. You 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 wielded the knife against Tony Abbott and won. Rishi Sunak seems to be slightly struggling right now with the fact that he did mm. quit against uh, Boris Johnson and, and sort of helped bring about his his downfall. But it's not, from your perspective, it's not impossible to to move against the leader and then emerge as leader yourself. Oh no! In fact, normally, normally in Australia, the the uh, the challenger is you know the person who seeks to succeed to the leadership leads the challenge yeah i mean i i i've always said in a variety of contexts that if you you know if you uh want to be an assassin you've got to be prepared to have blood on your hands and the uh you know if you want to depose the leader 
uh, and succeed him or her, you've got to be prepared to start up, you know, stand up and wield the metaphorical sword for sure. Um, but not not to overrate the comparisons between you and uh, Rishi Sunak, but he's been getting a lot of grief uh, during this campaign as well about his personal wealth, uh, which I know you had you had similar issues. I think at one point you were called Mister Harborside Mansion, but I always wonder with with politicians who have got money, what you're supposed to do, short of giving all your money away, um, <laughs> uh, what what are you supposed to do? How do you get around that politically when you start being attacked for your your personal circumstances? Well, well, look, I mean, there's, you know, you, you could give it all away to the poor. You could do that, and uh, you know, live live in a live in a barrel. Uh, but that that people would probably think you were mad then, and even and vote for you even less enthusiastically. <laughs> look, to be honest, I, I've that uh, attack on me, that line of attack, which was mostly made, actually originally made by Tony Abbott's uh, chief of staff. Um, was so not by the Labor Party yeah, at all. By, it was by your own side rather than your, yeah, your yeah, exactly. Yeah. It actually, it actually never worked. Um, the there was a, a moment uh, in the uh, in the House of Representatives where Shorten was having a go at me about that, and I I gave it back to him fairly forcefully. It's a pretty important exchange, and really after that, the Labor Party gave up on it because you know Australians. Australians like people to have a go. They they think that if people work hard and have a bit of luck, uh, they should, you know, they're entitled to have a quid. Um, what they don't like people that are stuck up or arrogant or who think because they've got money they're better than everybody else. So it's really important to be, you know, to to to, to not be like that. Uh, but but just the mere fact of having a few dollars or a lot of dollars. Uh, it doesn't count against you in in our political culture, and I suppose yeah, it's that whole thing, isn't it? If people who've done well, sort of, you do all right politically, but as long as you've not done too well, because then that send, tends to, um, you know, weirdly, there's a there's a there's a strange tipping point where uh, something that becomes uh, becomes a bad thing. I just want to ask you about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. I don't know if your your paths have ever crossed with either of them. I don't know if you. No, you're... I don't. I I I don't know. Uh, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. I know a number of, quite a lot of the other uh, leading members of the Conservative Party, uh, of course, in the UK, but not not those two. They're they're obviously both very, very capable, and um, you know, it's a, the Tory Party members have got a have got a very good, you know, very good choice. I guess. One of the things I want to ask you about. You talked about the sort of robust exchanges we sometimes see in uh, Australian politics, which are even a bit much, even for some time, for, for Britain. But we've imported quite a lot of the sort of the politics of Australia, not least uh, thanks to Linton Crosby. I mean, he's known here as the Wizard yeah. of Oz because, he, you know, the politi- right. great political strategist behind things like the dead cat strategy, pulling barnacles off the boat and uh, what else. I mean, he's got a mixed record in the UK, has to be said. He oversaw Boris Johnson when he ran for mayor in London successfully. Uh, but he was also behind the 2005 Tory election campaign, which they lost. Theresa May's 2017 campaign, where she lost a majority. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. What's your take on Linton Crosby? Is he a sort of, I don't know, a strategic political genius or is he a malign force in, in politics? Oh, no, he's, he's a great he's a great fellow, a uh, great guy and a very good friend. Uh, both he and his wife Dawn are very old friends of ours. Uh, I've known Linton for well over, well over 20 years. Uh, in fact, I encouraged uh, Linton and um, and Tex, Mark Texter, to set up what became Crosby Texter many years ago. 
So, you know, I, I had, I suppose, a, a hand. I was it's there. At the, I was there. I was there at the beginning. <laughs> I was there. It's my fault, you know. Like, but no, that that they have to take all of the credit and and all of the blame, if any. No, but he's a terrific guy, and he and he's very look. He's very he's very wise. He's got a lot of great sayings. Uh, getting barnacles off the boat is actually one of John Howard's, which uh, Lytton's appropriated, and Lytton's got another great saying. Uh, which I always think of when you see politicians professing their religiosity and their piety and, you know, uh, 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 public religious virtues. And that that, that saying is, when your neighbour starts quoting the Bible, start counting your cattle, Um, which uh, I think is worth remembering. That's a a very, very good one. And in terms of Boris Johnson, um, uh, he's obviously preparing to leave office. Your advice to him... Uh, as as an outgoing uh, prime minister, because I, I know in your in your book, your memoirs about your your time in office, you talked about how quickly the the trappings of power can can fall away. Oh yeah, well, well, the trap. I mean, the trappings of power. I mean, the you know the the staff and the the security. Although I think British ex British PMs keep their security detail. Actually, you've got a slightly different system to us. But yeah, the trappings of office fall away. But the most significant thing is that you go from being the most important person in the country to really having no power or influence at all, or very little. And that's that's a big adjustment. Um, and the phone stops ringing. It's amazing. <laughs> all those people that you thought were seriously interested in you. But I mean, look, <laughs> Boris. I mean, no, seriously. I mean, I, I've you know, I, I was not an ingenue when I went into politics. Uh, and neither is Boris, so I don't think I don't think anything that happens to Boris post politics will come as a surprise to him. And the uh, you know he's look he's wielded he's wielded the sword himself. It's a it's a tough business, you know you you know you've got to you've got to if you, if you want to give it you've got to be prepared to take it. That's some top advice there for, for Boris Johnson. Michael, uh, let's turn our attention to um, some policy issues, if you like. And one of the most pressing, I mean, certainly is, is part, of the, part of the conversation here in the UK right now, partly because we're experiencing, you know, a major drought, temperatures, record-breaking temperatures in the last few weeks here in the UK too. But climate change has been a much bigger dividing line, I think, in Australian politics than it has here in the UK. And you, you were, you were uh, a big proponent of taking action. And actually, that, that, co- that was part of what caused you political problems what would you like to to be seeing happening in australian politics and and uh, around the world and here in the uk as well when it comes to trying to tackle uh, climate change well matt we've just got to stop burning coal and gas right it's uh you know and petrol and other fossil fuels we've we've got to stop pumping co2 and and methane and other warming gases into the atmosphere um the uh you know we're frying the planet uh uh, as to the difference between Australia and the UK, it, look, you are very lucky in the UK that David Cameron made went green with the Conservative Party, and Boris has followed in that in that uh, vein, and I think that's very important because it's essentially taking action on climate was not a a hugely partisan issue, um, and it certainly didn't become a values or ideological issue as it has in in the United States and Australia. I mean, it's, uh, you know, your esteemed employer, Mr Murdoch, has absolutely weaponised this in the US and 
Australia uh, and has, you know, held up global action on global warming uh, very, very markedly. So uh, it was crazy. I mean, you know, seriously, saying you believe or disbelieve in global warming is about as smart as saying you believe or disbelieve in gravity. Uh, and we're all living with it. Uh, the consequences of uh, global warming uh, with extreme weather events around the world. So we just have to get cracking. Now, the good news is that uh, renewables, you know, wind and solar in particular, can deliver cheaper electricity than burning coal or gas. And if we're smart about things like pumped hydro, um, green hydrogen, we're going to be able to store that variable uh, electricity and uh, use it when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And if we do that, we'll have lots more electricity at lower prices uh, with zero emissions. So so we can get there, but we just need to get cracking. And time's running out. Well, time is running out, I suppose. That's the and actually, both I think both both leadership candidates in this contest have committed to the, the net zero of 2050 with very, varying degrees of enthusiasm. But that, that's held compared to some of the others who are, who are running against them. I want to ask you about sort of Australia's place in the world. There's been this sort of slight feeling, both Australia and New Zealand to some extent, tilting away from Britain, the West, uh, Britain and America, the, the Atlantic Alliance, and tilting towards, pivoting to towards Asia. Is that a real concern? I mean, maybe it's not a concern. Maybe that's just geographical no, reality. I, no, I think, I, I think yeah, that's, that's quite wrong. Uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by that. I mean, in terms of our alliance, speak, I'll just speak for Australia, and but what I'm saying is generally true for New Zealand too. But Australia's uh, key alliance is with the United States and, and New Zealand, as the ANZUS Pact. Uh, our closest security and intelligence relationships are with what are called the Five Eyes, which is the US, Australia, UK, Canada, and New Zealand. Um, we have got closer and closer ties with Japan um, and with Indonesia. <clears throat> we certainly are have been developing closer ties with our neighbours in Asia, as we should, and it was you know, one of the key aspects of my foreign policy to do that. That's why we that's why we kept the Trans-Pacific Partnership alive. Um, that was essentially a joint effort initially between me and Shinzo Abe to do that. And of course, with, when Donald Trump pulled out. Now, you know, thank heavens we did keep it going without the Americans because otherwise Britain wouldn't be able to join it, which is terrific. Um so I would say Australia is much more engaged in Asia. We're having our tense, difficult moments with China, of course, as a lot of others are at the moment. Uh, but we're more engaged in Asia, more engaged in the Southeast Asian re region, uh, but remain very closely uh, engaged with our traditional partners and allies in the United States and, of course, uh, in, in uh, the UK and in Europe. And, I mean... You know, truthfully, Matt, in in a in a modern in the modern world, uh, you know, technology has largely annihilated um, <clears throat> distance and geography. So, so the you know the fact is, you can fly. It takes you as long to fly to Beijing from Sydney as it does to fly from Beijing to London. So, yes, we are. You know, people think of Australia as being close to Asia. Yes, we are, but we're actually a long way from most places. Um, we're close to Southeast Asia, uh, but 
what we have to do is recognise in this world of rapid, instantaneous communication that we are engaged everywhere. Um, mm. You know, Australia is an important country. It's uh, it's not a superpower. It'll never be a superpower. But we have to build as many friendships and relationships around the world as we possibly can. And that's what we're doing. Just on that relationship uh, with the UK, we've seen other parts of the of the Commonwealth, stepping away from the Commonwealth, uh, choosing to become uh, a republic. Uh, you back in, was it back in 1999, you led the campaign in favour of Australia becoming a, a republic. Do you think that that yeah. is a path that Australia is on now? Would, do you think that might happen, you know, within your lifetime? Well, yes, I do. I hope it does. Uh, the I think the next, I said this in 99 when we, you know, lost the referendum on it, uh, that the next opportunity to consider this will be after the end of the Queen's reign. So I think when... Queen Elizabeth's reign comes to an end, um, there will be, you know, after that, there will be a period of reflection, and I think the Republic issue uh, will return. But, you know, the, the uh, be, most countries in the Commonwealth are republics today. You know, the, the back more than two-thirds are republics today. So the there's, there's nothing anti-British or anti-Commonwealth by not having the Queen or whoever is the monarch, the king of the United Kingdom, as uh, your head of state. It's really the, the, the Republican case in Australia has never been anti-British, no, no, not at all. It has basically been pro-Australian, and the proposition has been the very simple one, that all of our constitutional institutions, uh, offices, should be held by Australians. You know, our our head of state should be one of us. That was the you know that was the core argument, and I think that you know that that's as that is as compelling uh, today as it was as it was in ninety nine. Uh, so, so I mean, back in back in ninety nine, uh, the, the the no vote won with what was it fifty five fifty five forty five percent. But if it yeah. came back, if if it was essentially Prince Charles on the King Charles on the ballot then rather than Queen Elizabeth, you think Australians would vote uh, to become a republic at that point? Yeah, I, I think so. And look, I'm a, an admirer of Prince Charles. I, I think he's a, I think he does a great deal of good in the world. I really do. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not, it, it's not going to be a vote about whether Prince Charles or King Charles, as he would be then, is a good man or a good king. It's really about whether we want an Australian in that office. Look, the reason the referendum was lost in 99 was that there was a split among the Republicans, and you had we, we had a model for appointing a head of state who would have essentially the same largely ceremonial powers as the Governor-General does in Australia or the Queen has in the UK, uh, and that mode of appointment was to be by a supermajority of a parliamentary vote, in effect, a bipartisan vote in Parliament. And But there were Republicans who said, no, no, the president should be directly elected. And so you ended up, we were fighting effectively on two fronts. <laughs> uh, we were fighting against the monarchists like Tony Abbott, who said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and the direct election Republicans. And so I think if the issue, when the issue comes up again, the government of the day will be very uh, well advised to resolve the mode of election issue first. That's interesting, yeah, and, yeah. So that's, yeah, and so have that's... an advisory vote and say, okay, we're thinking of the Republic issue. If we were to be a Republic, would you want to have the President directly elected or elected in a non-political way? Get that issue decided and then take that 
outcome and then make that the model that you put to the people in the formal constitutional referendum. And that way, I think I think you've got your best chance of uh, getting it carried. Um, just, uh, just a couple. Well, I've got a couple more minutes with you, uh, Michael Turbull. I want to ask you about two two fa- internationally famous blondes. We'll deal with the um, not universally popular one first of all. Donald Trump's back in the news again today after his office has been mm. raided by the FBI. It's fair, you had a, it's fair to say you had a fairly like lots of world leaders difficult relationship with him. Famously having a row about <laughs> the policy of of trying to send illegal immigrants uh, who who tried to get to uh, Australia resettled in the US. So you had to go at you on the phone and then. As with most most things on Twitter, yeah, oh yeah. Well, look, I I had a Trump is a big bullying personality. I've dealt with a lot of people like that, you know, Kerry Packer and you know quite a few others over the years. Uh, and so while I hadn't dealt with Donald before he became president, I I knew the type. And the one thing you can't do with people like that is back down and you know suck up to them and which is, of course, what a lot of people very mistakenly did with Trump. It's the worst possible thing to do. Uh, you know, the only way, if, if you uh, grovel and suck up to bullies like that, all you're going to do is get more bullying. So we had a row, and after that, uh, I'd won his respect and we got on very well and had a very constructive relationship. Um the other blonde I think you're going to ask me about is Olivia Newton. It is Olivia, Olivia Newton John. I mean, the, uh, wouldn't the, think of anybody more different. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, yeah, hair colour about the uh, only thing. I mean, the papers here, uh, you know, papers here and websites and airwaves, absolutely mm-hmm. full of uh, tributes to Olivia Newton John. Yeah. Of course, a British, a British Australian as well. Yeah, and 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 loved. Uh, I mean, just so loved. Uh, Australia's heartbroken by her death. Um, She's obviously, you know, lit up our lives, you know, with her song and dances. Danny, I watched Greece again this morning for the first time in, you know, 40 years. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible loss. But, you know, where I dealt with her and I, uh, when I was PM, was in her advocacy for cancer research. Yeah, you know, exactly. She had breast cancer, recovered, and then she just became the most passionate and effective advocate for cancer research and treatment. Um, and because, because of her profile, because of her persuasion, because of just she just radiated love. And, um, and you know, that made her a very powerful very powerful advocate and so she lit up lives as an entertainer and then she saved lives as an advocate and yeah and i suppose it's testament to her that using her profile from like you said uh singing and dancing to to bring about you know to literally save lives is such an extraordinary thing uh, for her to have done last question malcolm turnbull are you going to miss neighbors Well, I think we'll all miss neighbours, but uh, it's you know it's been around a long time. It's always had a much greater uh, audience in the UK. I mean, it's essentially British audiences that kept it going. <laughs> yeah. Too. So the question is, will 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 British audiences miss neighbours? Well, I think probably if more people uh, were going to miss it, it might still be on. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm probably yeah. guilty of this. That I I watched the last episode. We've got extraordinary figures for the last episode, but if more people had watched it normally. It would still be on, uh, Malcolm. I feel like we've covered an awful lot of uh, aw- awful lot of ground there, from uh, from you know, 
political skullduggery to climate change and China and Donald Trump, Olivia mm. Newton-John and Neighbours. I, I think that's probably ticked off the whole list. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.